Thank you, Ronnie. We will get to that psalm in just a few minutes. And thanks for the music, you guys. Wonderful as always. And you guys are pretty good, you know that. <laughs> it's just, it's just I just like to listen and soak it in. It's just really nice. Really appreciate, really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much, Bill. Let's pray together. Let me invite you to pray with me. Oh God, as we uh, start a new week uh, after Thanksgiving, we ask that you give us as individuals and as a fellowship the things that we need to live a life that is able to grasp just the whole picture, the whole nature of things and focus on what you're doing as a whole. Help us to avoid the the twisted perspectives and partialities that cause us to get into confusion with our relationships, especially our relationship with you. Father, we ask that you give us a sense of proportion, that we grasp what is important and what is not. Uh, protect us from getting too uptight and, and too hot and bothered and anxious over things that really don't matter. We ask that you give us a sense of humor this week, that we're able to laugh a lot this week and not take ourselves too seriously. Father, give us a sense of responsibility that we approach each task each day as something that we can do for the common good, the common good of your people and the people around us. And Lord, give us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit that we may see when, he is, when we are hurting people, that we may sense when we are get out of line, and that we may follow your guidance in the decisions we have to make that we may be kind to everyone we meet and learn to love those who do not know you. Father, give us a sense of solemnity to take things seriously that need to be taken seriously. Give us a continual awareness of the presence of Jesus in our lives and that we may do nothing that would grieve him or grieve the Spirit and damage the reputation of the Savior. So, Father, we ask that you take away our, any sense of fear that you take away any kind of uh, risk aversion that we might have in order to follow you and to trust you into what you say and what you call us to do. Father, we ask all these things for the sake of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, that psalm that, that uh, Ronnie read may not sound much like a Christmas psalm that we should have picked, but hopefully we'll get to that and uh, it, will, it will kind of become clear. Uh, Sue and I have always been, we were some of those kids that were always interested in space and science fiction. And, you know, in my side of the bedroom, I had a poster of the Apollo 11 astronauts. And uh, she said that she actually was one of those kids who, when she grew up, she wanted to be an astronaut. And took a, a course in astronomy in college, even though it had nothing to do with her, her major. Uh, and one of the films, we, could, we get into those kind of films and things, and one of the films I like the most about, one of the, my favorite space movies, is a, a movie that came out about 10 or 11 years ago called Gravity. And I feel like I've talked about this before, and I showed it to Sue, and I told Sue this, and she goes, well, I really don't remember it. And we know that she hangs on every word I say, so I'm assuming that I haven't talked about this, but, <clears throat> but I don't know if you saw it or not. It's really a, it's really a fantastic movie. Uh, it's uh, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. I mean, how can you go wrong with those two, right? And uh, she plays a doctor named, named Ryan Stone, and he plays a, an astronaut, a pilot, named Matt Kowalski. And they're working on the International Space Station, Space Station. And this movie works 
on many levels. Uh, it works on a, on a visual level. It's just absolutely gorgeous, the movie. I never once doubted that they were in space and, uh, and in zero gravity. And uh, it also works on a good space movie. It's uh, about they're going up there to repair and work on the space station. And what happens is this, uh, this, the Russians destroy one of their satellites. And, of course, it sends debris out everywhere. And when it sends debris out, you know, it, it, it starts at a speed and it never stops until it hits something in the space, you know. And they are peppered with the debris from the satellite, including knocking them off or knocking her off, uh, off, the, off the space station. But it also works on a, on a metaphorical level. It also is sort of a, a metaphor, a symbol of her life in general. And uh, she is knocked off the space station, and she sees nothing. And all she can scream is say, I see nothing, I see nothing. And then finally, of course, the, of course George Clooney reaches out and grabs her, and all she can say is, don't let go, don't let go, don't let go. And they finally kind of work their way in. I'm not going to give you a lot, of, a lot of spoilers, but they finally kind of work their way in. And in that time, you get a glimpse of her, her life on Earth. And her life on Earth has suffered an en enormous tragedy uh, with her daughter. And uh, she received the phone call uh, on, in the car on her cell phone. And she said, I just kept driving. And she then that's all I do. I get off work and I drive and I drive and I drive and I drive. And it turns out that this whole thing about space is exactly what, uh, symbolically, what's going on in her life. She has no place to stand. There is no gravity where she is. She doesn't have anything to hold on to. And all she can say is, I see nothing. I see nothing. Don't let go. Don't let go. They finally get back in where they work around, and finally he say, he's convincing her she's holding on to something, piece of, the, of metal, and he says, you've got to let go of that and hang on to something that's more secure. And that's kind of the story of, her, of the movie, and that's the story of her life. And at the end, she kind of hears this voice of Matt, the astronaut, that tells her, stop driving, Ryan, and go home. Stop driving and go home. And I almost feel like not only is that movie is kind of a metaphor for her life, the story of her life, to me... Dr. Ryan Stone is sort of a personification of Psalm 80. And if you just read it on the surface, you go, oh, this is so depressing. We're starting the Christmas season like this? Well, hopefully we will get to that. We will get to why this is. The Psalms, we have to realize that, that we have this idea sometimes that the Psalms are just these, these wonderful declarations of God's character, theological declarations, and they are that, but the theological declarations they, they, they proclaim sometimes are not true. And the reason they're not true is because they are so honest. That these are not just, same, these are not just a theological textbook. These are expressions of the human heart. And they are honest expressions of the human heart. Honest expressions of feelings. Uh, one of the scholars back in the 4th century, uh, St. John Cassian, he said the Psalms reflect every emotion capable of a human being. And that's how we're supposed to read the Psalms. They are expressions, true, honest expressions of human feelings and human emotions and the human predicament. They're not necessarily true statements, all true statements about God. They are songs. They are poetry. 
and they reflect us. And that is why I think the Psalms resonate with people so much, Christians and non-Christians. They resonate with us because they speak to us and they speak for us. And I think that's the reason why this movie was so popular is not that it was a great space movie, but that people resonated with it because they know what that feels like. They know what it feels like to say, I see nothing. I see nothing. Don't let go. Don't let go. That's what the psalm is all about. That how do we, how do we present a future for people who think there is no future? There is no future coming along. And God keeps telling us, you need to let go of that and grab hold of something more secure. And that's pretty much what the psalm is saying to us, that we can scream, I see nothing, but we must trust the one who sees everything. That's the point of the psalm. And it starts off, it's really easy to divide because you have this repeating chorus three times. You have this repeating chorus in the psalm. And it starts off in the first three verses, you know, great. He's, 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 a, he's pleading to God, and he, he gets God's character right. We see God's character, that, he, that he's, he's calling out to God who is both shepherd and king. He is the shepherd, the compassionate shepherd, and yet he is the powerful king. He is sitting on the throne of the cherubim, and he's all-powerful. And he's appealing to God in both those areas. And, of course, that's how David was described, and, of course, that is how our Savior is described. That Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. And he also talks about himself as being on the right hand of God, on the throne. And so you have this picture of Jesus, and this is what he starts off saying. You know, you are the shepherd who leads us, and you are the king who sits on the throne. And he says, he says you are the king, the Messiah, the God of Joseph. And it's really interesting that he uses Joseph here, because almost in the Old Testament, they always say, you're the God of Abraham, or you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, Joseph. Why Joseph? Where did he come from? Well, I think they're identifying with Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph. He, was, he suffered this incredible injustice, being sold into slavery by his brothers, and then God rescued him. And it's like the author saying, remember what you did for Joseph? Do this for us now. This is what we need. And it's hard to tell historically what's going on here, whether it's the, the conquering of Babylon or maybe Assyria. The Greek, the, it's interesting, the Greek translation of this psalm talks about being used at the time of Assyria at a later time when it conquered Israel the northern tribe so it's hard to tell when exactly the historical event is but whatever it is they say we are like Joseph we're suffering this great injustice come and rescue us he says give ear shine forth display your might and save us calling these out and then we get into the response. And these are very human responses. And the first one is, God, you're the problem. We're blaming you. You did this to us. You gave us over this. You destroyed us. You're, or at least you're turned away from us. And he says, instead of a feast, a wedding feast that we're expected to enjoy, what you've given us for food and wine, it's just a bucket full of tears. You did this. And he says, ang and, and usually it's translated anger here, that God's anger is turned against him. But literally, it just says the smoke came out. The smoke covers him. 
And sometimes it's, it's, it's a, seen as a picture for anger, but it could also be a picture of his indifference, that the smoke is covering him. He is clouded by this, and he is indifferent, and he doesn't care. And the response is, you did this. And we read this, and we go, gosh, this is kind of a, this is kind of a shock to us. We don't find any self-examination here. We don't find any soul-searching. We don't find any confession here. We don't find any repentance. It's just that God's been disconnected with us. He's away from us. And if you're reading this for the first time, you may think, boy, this is, this is kind of shocking. I mean, if I said this out loud in a small group, they would probably just look at me like, oh, you know, they, they worry about me. And, and you're pastoring the church? But I would submit that this is pretty honest. And I would doubt that there's not a person in this room that hasn't thought that. Wants to blame God for this. This is your fault. And we cry for restoration. We cry for rescue. And all we get is a deaf ear. And how do we present hope when hope has lost all credibility? When it's just like we don't, we can, we don't see it that his absence is the blame. Richard Rohr describes suffering as a loss of control, and I think that is probably about as good a definition as I can think of, that it's a loss of control. Uh, we lose control of nature. We lose control of our work. We lose control in the home, or we've lost control in our own bodies. But this, this we just lost control, and that, that's just this grieving loss. And this psalm gives this kind of suffering a voice. It lets us say it out loud. And I think my point here in this section here is that this validates our feelings, that it's okay. We don't need to clean up our language here. We can just say it. God can handle it. He can take it. And we can say it. The psalmist says it. So the first response is, God, it's your fault. And the second response is also very human. Remember the glory days. Remember the days in the past when things were right, things were good. That's when we want to go back to. He says, remember you, the vine that you took out of Egypt and you planted it and it grew and it provided shade and it was a place of safety and security and, and all those wonderful things. And now it's all torn down and the, and the pigs are coming in to eat it and the walls are burned down and everything's gone. Remember the glory days. And we love to do that. We love to do that as Christians. Remember when this happened? We do it in the realm of economics and politics. Remember when? You think about the, the 60s, and I'm going, yeah, I remember when. I was in the elementary school, and I also remember riots in the street. I remember the Vietnam War. I remember Watergate. But those were the glory years. And they all want to go back. They want to go back to the glory years. And, you see, and, he, and he reminds them of the covenant. Remember, this is your, your people, your, your solution, your promise. And what we need is, again, your strength and power. And this is really the heart of the issue, that they are pleading for God's presence. So the response is, God, you're the blame. And let's return to the glory years. Let's go backwards. And, and I feel this way about Christians a lot of times. 
that we love the past more than we love the present or the future. And this psalmist is telling us to look to the future. But how do we have hope in the future when it seems like hope has lost all of its credibility? The heart of this psalm is the repeated chorus. You see it in verse 3. Oh God, restore us. Smile on us, then we will be delivered. Verse 7. O God of heaven's armies, restore us. Smile on us. Let your face shine upon us, then we will be delivered. And then again in verse 19 at the end of the psalm. O Lord, God of heaven's armies, restore us. Smile on us, and then we will be delivered. That's the chorus. That's the heart of this psalm. Three times it's repeated. And they're actually calling on God to repent. There's a famous word in, in Hebrew called shuv. It basically means to turn around or to turn to go back. And they're calling on God to turn back. And we'll get to that in the, last, in the last section here in a second. But they're the ones who are going to turn. But the heart of this whole psalm is that chorus. And if you'll notice, the chorus changes each time a little bit. It's like God's character starts to expand. It starts off with just, oh God, restore us. Just Elohim, this general God. Just God, restore us. And then it became, oh God of the heaven's armies, restore us. Okay, you're not just God, but you're God of the armies. You're God of the power. And then finally, the last one is the key. Oh Yahweh, God of heaven's armies. Finally, they get down to the specific covenant God, the God who makes promises, the God who saved Israel, the God who calls us Yahweh. This is your people, your promise, your covenant, and we desire to be with you. And finally, finally, in the psalm, God hears what he wants to hear, and that is, we want to be with you. God is constantly seeking us. God wants to be with us, but he's a gentleman. He needs access. And finally, Israel comes around and says, we want to be with you. He says in the last three verses, may you give support to the one you have chosen, to the one whom you raised up for yourself, and then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will pray to you, O Lord God of heavens. Armies, restore us. Smile on us. Your face will shine upon us and we will be delivered. This all goes back to that original promise in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord will bless you and he will keep you and his face will shine upon you. In other words, you will receive his favor. This final petition is not a complaint, but it's finally one of trust. And that's what God wants to hear. It is finally a declaration of trust. In this little three verses, I see that it's a voice of boldness. It's not just weak resignation because, okay, I give up, I give up. This is a declaration of trust. And it seems out of place without all the stuff that's gone before it. And then all of a sudden he makes a turn around and actually trust him that this is the faith, that he says we're not going to find security anywhere else but you. We have to learn to let go 
and hold on to the one who sees everything. That God is both the problem, but now they, they finally realize there's nowhere else to turn. He has to be the solution. He has to be the rescuer. And so he says, we will not turn back. There's that word again. They're calling on God to turn. And once he does, he says, we will not turn back. It is a declaration of boldness, but it is also a declaration of faithfulness, of their trust in him, that where life comes from, they will not run after another God, that life comes from him and him alone. And we won't run after any other God, that this God is big enough to hear us. He is strong enough to restore us. He is compassionate enough to give us safety. And it sounds like it's simplistic, but it isn't. It is simple. It is a simple thing of trust. This voice is actually hopeful. And this is the Sunday of hope. This is the Sunday of expectation. That it goes beyond disappointment. That this does not just give easy answers about suffering, but there is this deep sense of trust in spite of the loss, in spite of all. He has the majesty to do it. He is the involved shepherd. He has planted us where we are, and God wants to be with us if we will allow access to him. So we can continue to hope in ourselves, in our own success, in our own power, our own perfection, our own talents. We continue to hold on to that. But sometimes I really believe that sometimes until we reach that point of despair, like in Psalm 80, the psalmist here in 80, that we will not understand the deeper source of where that life comes from. And I hate to say it, but suffering is part of it. I wish it wasn't. And I don't believe God causes pain and causes this. We do. But we have reached at the point where we can't turn anywhere else. And this gives us hope. This is our only hope that is larger than ourselves. That we may think there's no future, but there is a future filled with the things we need the most if we let go of this stuff and hang on to the only one who can. God keeps telling us to let go of that, hold on to me. Don't let go, don't let go. This longing can only be met by God's presence. I have a few incidents in my ministry that I cannot forget, that I will not allow myself to forget, that will stay with me my whole life. Most of it, like most of you probably, most of the things I remember have to do with failures and not successes. Either it has to do with my failures or it has to do with uh, my helplessness, feeling helplessness. And I had one of those in Irving uh, when I was a youth pastor back in the 80s, mid-80s. And a mom had come to me and, and asked if I would talk to her daughter that she was engaged to a man that she did not want her to marry. So I said, sure. So she comes into the office, uh, the, the young woman comes to my office, and she has long, she's a beautiful girl, long, dark hair. She sits down, and I notice the scars on her arm either from self-harming, possibly even suicide. And we get to talking about this guy, 
and he's a known drug dealer in Irving, Texas, abuses her. And, and I remember asking her, why are you going to marry this monster? I didn't say monster, though. I said, why are you going to marry this guy? And her response was, because I don't deserve any better. I can't imagine being in a place like that where you, your response is, I don't deserve any better. How do you convince someone that there's a future with everything that you need to a person who thinks there's no future? And I understand that. I understand that we get to the point where we can't believe in any future. And, and you talk to people and people think that things are getting worse and worse and worse. And I understand that. I totally get that. But how do we say there is a future? And every good parent does that with children. Every good parent tells children that. That there is a future. It will get better. That wound will heal. And it's the abusing parents who not only hurt their children physically, but also hurt their spirit teaching them that, well, it really won't get better. In fact, this is a dead end. And what does that lead to but despair, depression, addiction, alcoholism, and then self-harm, even suicide? But as good parents, we usually tell them. I remember, I can remember some incidents very, very clearly um, of Katie when she was a toddler and uh, I think she's probably two years old, and she got out in the backyard, and in Texas, we have fire ants. And I don't know if you've ever heard of those before or not, but they're, they're deadly. And we had fire ants in the backyard, and she got into a fire ants, and they just covered her immediately. And the bloody scream, you know, that we heard in the backyard. And we had to tell her, it's going to get better, it will get better, it will get better. That's what we tell our kids. But when we take that away, we end up with despair. And there are some people who hear that offer and they think they've heard it once and rejected it and that's it. I get one shot at it and I'm done. And if I rejected it back then, it doesn't matter. Faith is over. Faith has spoken. The cell door is shut. There are some people who think, like this young woman, that they don't deserve it. You offer grace and forgiveness and love and restoration and hope and they think, I don't deserve it. That their history's too long. They come from the wrong side of the tracks. They come from the wrong people. My parents were drug dealers. My grandparents were drug addicts. That's all I know. I will be a drug addict, I'm sure. And then there are people who think they do deserve it. That because of their talent, because of their hard work, their work ethic, I've tried to obey God all my life. Those other people don't deserve it, but I deserve it. And this offer is for everyone. Yes, we may have lost confidence that there are better days ahead, and that's understandable. And yet, God keeps coming back with, no, it's not. No, it's not. Hang on. Hang on, it will get better. I promise. You will have everything that you need. It will get better. 
and this hope, these last three verses sort of seem out of, out of place. But we know that God did answer that. He did lay his hand on the one on his right side. And so, but we have this, this, this incredible plot twist in the story of the Bible. That the prophets and the, and the psalmists, they've always predicting this Messiah will come, that he will come, this long-expected hope, and, and yet it comes, but it comes in an incredibly unexpected way. It doesn't come in the power and the strength that their hope that the psalmist in Psalm 80 is hoping for. It comes in the form of humility and vulnerability. It comes with a baby. Not the power and strength that we think, or not the kind of power we expect, but something that's shocking, shockingly vulnerable, shockingly humble. It comes in a helpless child. It comes in a choir singing to people who are at the bottom of the social ladder. The glory is manifested in a barn with the smell of animals and manure. It comes with the meek will inherit the earth. It comes with a total revision of what we expect. And we have to stop and sort of catch our breath to kind of understand this. It's not anything what we think. You see, their complaint was he was absent. And the solution is that he comes to us. He's not here. The answer is the enfleshment of God. The complaint is that he is absent. And the answer is the incarnation, is the enfleshment, that he is here with us. And it's ridiculously uncomprehensible. It's, it's ridiculous at the lengths that he goes to be with us. That he takes on flesh and bone and blood destined for suffering. And the solution is, that he shares it with us. That his strength is made known in weakness. That the last will be first. Blessed are the meek. Just the opposite of what we think. So we may think that there's no future. But there is a future filled with the things we need. We may be screaming and crying, I see nothing, I see nothing, I see nothing. That's when we grab hold of the one who sees everything. This psalm sounds depressing, but yet it is a psalm of boldness, it is a psalm of faithfulness, it is a psalm of hope. And God fulfills it in a way we did not expect. He feels it in a way that we had no clue this was coming. Instead of the power that Israel was calling for, it comes with vulnerability and humility to share with us. That yes, we can think that there's no future, but there is a future filled with the things that we need the most. Let's pray together. Father.